is a box, a musical box, wound up and ready to play. Can you guess what is in it today? Emergency! Calling Green Cross Man! Green Crosses! Where do you think you're going, you Dumbo? Green Cross! When you get to the curb, always stop, stop, stop! Sorry, Green Cross. Remember, stop near the curb, not on it. That's the way. Always use the Green Cross code, because I won't be there when you cross the road. Hello, I'm Bill Lawrence, and welcome to this very special edition of Box 39, which is not coming from the studio today, because I'm out on the road with our exclusive investigations of our roads. We spend so much of our lives travelling on them. They're a key feature of what our world looks like, and we all have an opinion on whether they're good or bad for our lives. But what do we really know about roads? Well, it's time to find out. Regrettably, my fellow Box 39 presenter Adrian Cohen can't be with me today. Some call him the Swampy of Cone Radio. And that's not just because he personally ensures that we have a reasonably priced supply of sustainable and stylish recycled cardboard cups for our Peruvian coffee that we have flown over at Wivenhoe residence expense. And that's not just because of his resilience and sense of sacrifice. Well, recently, he offered to loan his own luxury barbecue for as long as it was needed to the underground protesters who had chained themselves to the roots of the famous Wivenhoe ancient oak tree in their battle against the new Wivenhoe Riverside housing development. But probably he's called Swampy because, well, sometimes he just doesn't smell very good. So I shall be driving alone, but meeting plenty of friends along the way and I shall be driving the Colm Radio Senior Presenter's Company Sports Car as we investigate the hidden secrets of our streets and highways, our lanes and motorways, as we open Box 39 once more and go out on the road. Son. 
To make sense of our roads, it's important to understand the basic timeline of events to put it all into context. So let me present a potted history of Britain's road network from the turn of the 20th century to the present. The motor car first became a real concern for the authorities just before the First World War, when the inadequacy of the unsurfaced and largely unmaintained road network was acknowledged by the government. They reacted by setting up the Road Board in 1914, which collected taxes from motorists and spent the money on surfacing and improving the roads. By the 1930s, this had become the Ministry of Transport with much greater powers, which included giving the roads numbers and creating the system of A and B roads. But it was only in the 1950s that the government set about building specialist roads, with the very first trial of motorway, the Preston Bypass, being the first section of the M62. It was a huge success, and so within a year, the first section of the M1 had opened to traffic, almost 60 miles of six-lane motorway plus various spurs. Nothing like it had been seen before in the UK, and it was hailed by the press as an icon of the resurgent post-war Britain, and its original service area, the Watford Gap, became a tourist attraction. The design capacity for the new motorway was for 14,000 vehicles per day. The 1960s was a decade of motorway mania, with the government building 1,000 miles of motorway by the end of the decade. Roads were favoured over rail, not just as the key for economic growth and success, but also as an important part of the UK's cultural currency. The notorious Beeching Report was greeted with open arms as it rationalised an unwieldy rail network and all the money saved, well, it could be spent on the motorways. In the 1970s, that road-building machine seemed unstoppable. A network of futuristic urban highways was planned and begun with crash barriers, electronic matrix signs and the high specifications for construction. British motorways were easily the most technologically evolved in Europe, if not the world. It was inevitable though that the tide would turn. The A40M Westway, an elevated motorway approaching the centre of London, was a big turning point in public opinion. Six lanes of motorway traffic now ran at a first-floor level alongside otherwise pleasant Victorian homes through more than a mile of West London suburbia. The campaigns against urban motorways, growing for some time, could not have asked for better publicity. Few urban roads on the same scale were ever built in the UK again. And in 1976, the energy crisis struck, with Middle East oil rising in price and coal miners on strike. Road construction came to a sudden halt. 
Resuming normal life afterwards, the government found itself shaken by Britain's dependency on oil and never really invested as much money in road building again. But as the motorway mileage built up, so did the running costs, which eventually took up the majority of the government's road budget. In 1989, Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government produced the white paper entitled Roads for Prosperity. Its central theme was that roads were good for the economy and there hadn't been enough road building in the recent past and therefore it was about time we started laying some more tarmac. Thatcher personally opened the final section of the M25 in 1986 as a symbol of her support for road building. Within a few weeks, the road was running beyond its intended capacity. The M40 between Oxford and Birmingham opened almost in one go in 1991 and that was the last long-distance route to be built in Britain. By 2000, for the first time since 1956, there were no new motorways under construction in the UK. Though in 2001, 27 miles of new motorway was opened, forming a northern bypass for Birmingham and uniquely charging motorists who used it, the now famous M6 toll road. Over the last two decades, road transport has been steadily going out of fashion. In political circles, at least. And today, many of the measures that are regarded as being in the motorist's favour are simply concerned with squeezing more capacity out of one of the developed world's most congested road networks. Listening to Box, uh, what is it? 39. Box 39. There is 
nothing straightforward about the seemingly simple business of giving roads a number. The system of A and B roads we use today in mainland Great Britain is now more than a hundred years old. They're a staple of navigation and one of the basic expectations of our modern transport network. All-purpose roads in mainland Britain, that is all public motorable roads, excluding motorways, are divided into three classes. There's class one roads, the major through routes, forming the basic network of main roads. They qualify for a higher grant rate and they get numbers prefixed with an A. Then class two roads, less important, often of a lower physical standard and they serve smaller settlements or form connections between other roads. They get a lower grant rate and numbers prefixed with a B. The third type of road is, logically enough, unclassified. These are minor roads that are left over. Country lanes, city streets, unclassified roads don't get public numbers. So we have a letter. Now we need some digits. The allocation of numbers is based on a hub and spoke system, with the country divided into nine zones that radiate from two central hubs, London and Edinburgh. Radiating from these hubs are the nine principal A roads. For example, A1, London to Edinburgh, A2, London to Dover, A3, London to Portsmouth, and so on. These roads divide Great Britain then into nine distinct zones. All other A and B roads get their number from the zone they lie in, so a road in zone 5 will have a number that starts with a 5. Simple. The system was intended to allocate shorter numbers to important roads and longer numbers to minor ones. So an A road can have one, two, three, or even four digits, while B roads can only ever have three or four digits. The start of work on the motorway network in the late 1950s created a whole new type of road and called for a whole new set of numbers. With London as the hub, the motorways M1 to M4 radiate outwards, starting with the M1 parallel to the A1. Hence the first four routes run M1, London to Leeds, M2, Medway Towns Bypass, M3, London to Southampton, M4, London to Bristol, and then Wales. After that, well, it just gets very complicated and at times illogical. As for Scotland and Northern Ireland, they have their own motorway system. There's even a hybrid numbering system. Take the A1 brackets M, for example. These roads are proper motorways. The restrictions are just the same, the standard of engineering matches, the best and worst of regular motorways, just without a motorway number. We have what might be the most unusual road numbers in the world, but then that doesn't surprise me in the least.
Hey, I'm Alan Partridge. Love my listeners. Hate cancer. So listen up, guys. I'm not going to muck about. You know the drill. Check your balls. Check the inside of your bum. Message over. Back to the pod. Cheers. motorways have been the subject of controversy for years with an increasingly vocal campaign against them and now the government have said they are to be scrapped well sort of now a smart motorway is one that's been rebuilt to provide more running lanes uses technology to manage traffic flow and in almost all cases has occasional laybys instead of a continuous hard shoulder road building is politically very difficult so it's rarely possible to relieve a congested motorway by building another motorway nearby that usually makes widening the only workable solution but widening an existing motorway is the slowest most difficult most expensive and most inefficient way to provide extra capacity bridges have to be rebuilt carriageways relayed with new profiles all the while live traffic continues to run so in the early 2000s we had the smart motorway a fourth lane could be added quickly and cheaply if the hard shoulder was sacrificed with the advantage that no bridges had to be rebuilt the carriageway didn't have to be modified and since no new land had to be acquired there was no public inquiry or planning permission needed today long lengths of the english motorway network have been converted to be smart motorways but optimism has been tempered by reality stranded vehicles being seen straight away proves to be simply untrue national highways control centers don't have the staffing to watch all the cameras all the time so breakdowns usually have to be reported by phone before the signals are activated they're dangerous response times are slow and people have died after becoming stranded in live lanes on smart motorways in situations where the presence of a hard shoulder shoulder might have saved them opposition to the concept of smart motorways is now very well organized led from the front by the starkly named smart motorways kill campaign the press is actively hostile questions are raised in parliament coroners issue damning verdicts and shot through all of this is the same overarching fear that these roads are not safe because the hard shoulder has been taken away what's actually happening is that the current situation is being frozen we will still have smart motorways though official use of that term is probably going to be abandoned we're just not going to convert anymore and that leaves some overloaded motorways without a plan motorway projects that were supposed to deliver extra capacity have been cancelled we can't build new motorways to relieve the old ones we can't easily or affordably wind them and now we can't convert them to smart motorways either there just isn't another option so in the absence of other ideas well that's it Ain't no 
I'm delighted to say that we have received an email from listener Mandy Hares. Now, Mandy was the winner of our recent competition when listeners had to work out what sort of sandwich we were eating using just a series of cryptic clues and a four-digit ordnance survey map reference. Mandy correctly identified that we were eating fried egg sandwiches and not, as many incorrectly thought, roast beef with a whole grain mustard. Now, Mandy's prize was, of course, a rollover from the previous competition, which nobody won. And that was the Christmas competition to identify what was in Santa's pocket. And so Mandy's prize was pretty special. It was an all-expenses weekend for two in London. Mandy has written to thank everyone here at Box 39 and to say what a wonderful weekend she had. She went with her boyfriend Alfie and they had a swim and a spa at their hotel in the morning, had lunch just off Piccadilly and then spent the afternoon shopping. And Mandy adds, in the evening, after a very special dinner with champagne and oysters, Alfie completely surprised her when after a few more drinks he took her right up the post office tower. Mandy says she's never done that before, but it was an unforgettable experience, and perhaps she'll do it again one day. Well, thank you, Mandy, for letting us know all about your weekend in London, and keep listening out for the next competition with a wonderful prize coming soon here on Box 39. They are everywhere. They're connecting roads large and small, organising and smoothing the conflicting needs of traffic, helping people get on and off busy motorways, providing a pleasant transition from open road to suburb, making the flow of urban streets more efficient. Of course, they're roundabouts, and it's amazing how productive it can be to go in circles. The Humble Roundabout has been with us for over a century now in various forms, through all manner of fashions for straight sides and sharp corners, different systems of priority, one-way and two-way traffic flows. To people overseas, they've often become associated with all things British. In the beginning, there were no rules and roundabouts were a free-for-all. Traffic joining the roundabout squeezed in wherever it could and vehicles already circulating tried to make way for it. The junctions were slow to pass around because at every point everybody had to slow down and work out what the other motorists around them were doing. Rules were obviously needed. In the northeastern USA, in particular the states of New Jersey and Massachusetts, there was a growing number of rotaries, much like a roundabout, except that it's much larger, and often it's the traffic joining that takes priority. Rotaries would lock up very quickly under heavy traffic, so American highway engineers largely wrote off the roundabout in the 1960s as an irrelevance. But Britain went in the other direction completely. The idea was really quite simple. Make traffic wait to join. Then give it absolute priority until it leaves the roundabout and you stop the junction locking up because nobody can block the path of vehicles trying to reach their exit. The effect was enormous given the minor changes that had been made. The introduction of the priority rule turned the humble roundabout into something capable of handling large volumes of traffic efficiently. It gave equal priority to everyone, avoiding uneven waiting times on different approaches to the junction. Unlike traffic signals, it didn't force anyone to wait or to go and let motorists choose their movements so they were only kept waiting for the shortest possible time. And unlike unruly urban junctions of the time, it didn't require a police officer to regulate it. So the roundabout became the perfect traffic control device. 
New towns were being built from Harlow to Cumbernauld, from Redditch to Washington, from Skelmersdale to Crawley, and they all had one design component in common, roundabouts everywhere. Britain was on the road to becoming a roundabout nation. Roundabouts, well, they're polite. Traffic signals much favoured in the USA and Germany amongst other nations of roundabout sceptics are strict and precise and robotic. You stop when it's red and you go when it's green, and that's that. But at a roundabout, you are interacting with the other drivers around you, and to get the best out of it, you all need to act politely and courteously towards each other by signalling your intentions, taking the correct line through the junction, and so on. At a roundabout, you have to play by the rules, because if you don't, you bang into someone. If it's safe to go, you're not breaking the rules. And if it's not safe to go, you better stop. There's no way to run a roundabout like you could run a red light, for example. So, mind your manners, obey the rules, and take your turn. It's not just advice, though, for using a roundabout. It could actually be a summary of British culture. to polish my box my special box my box 39 of British road signs was first developed around the turn of the 20th century, but its most radical overhaul came between the Second World War and the War Boys Report of 1964. And the system that was developed over that time is still in use today. 
It's the system that gives us green signs on primary routes, red triangular warning signs and, well in fact, almost everything else that's recognisable and distinctive about the road signs that exist on every street and every road across the whole of the UK. Road signs before the Second World War were too old-fashioned, not noticeable enough, too wordy, and they gave prominence to route numbers which at the time were prone to change from one year to the next, making many signs obsolete several times over. The Ministry of Transport's response was to commission the Road Research Laboratory to set up some more wide-ranging experiments. Carried out in 1955, they examined the size and use of patches, the scaling of letters and whether abbreviations could be used to allow larger letters without larger signs. In 1958, the Ministry of Transport was kicked into action over road signing. Something had to be done because Britain's first motorway was due to open in just a few months. Signposting remained surprisingly disorganised, to the extent that several local authorities decided to ignore the regulations completely. Towns set up signs of their own design. In Berkshire, for example, they were in black on a yellow background for junctions around towns, whilst in nearby Oxfordshire they used lettering in black on a white background. Some used a full uppercase alphabet, some used both upper and lower cases together. So in 1959, the final report of the War Boys Committee, set up by the Ministry of Transport to sort out this mess, detailed a set of traffic signs that was an enormous improvement over its predecessor. And it received widespread congratulations from the press and from motorists themselves. Britain now at last conformed to European standards and made full use of the technology now available to make large, detailed and colourful signs. For the first time, it was possible, without having to simply write the message in capital letters on a plain black and white sign, to warn drivers of a cul-de-sac, to instruct them to keep left and to prevent them from parking in a given location. A grasp of English was no longer required to understand the symbol for a narrowing road and the urgency of having to stop was no longer lost in the wordy instructions to halt at a major road ahead. Warboys was a world leader in good signing practice. Well, since then, the acclaimed system has been tweaked several times, but no need has ever been identified to change anything on a large scale. Blue borders may have narrowed and then disappeared, brown signs have popped up, new warning signs have emerged, and old warning signs have had their symbols altered, and the stop sign has grown eight new corners. But most things, well, they remain the same. Lo 
love all the girl and she a groove me She always don't just how to soothe me I wouldn't mind if she just use me She woulda never ever lose me Me have to make the woman ya be mine No matter how much hill and mountain top me ya fi climb Girl a be a bit fi taste a pick up all me time Well this a girl a mad me with a gun shell design I tell you it's a roadblock Just how the girl a match up the man I'm a just a look for a gun and a crash See a cause roadblock All we a gun and stop all of the man I'm a chick glass up and buckle a mash I tell you it's a roadblock Just how the girl a match up the man I'm a just a look for a gun and tear a crash See a cause roadblock All we're gonna stop all of them and I'm a chick that's up and buckle a mash This is Box 39, listened to by Australians all around the world. If you are in our wilderness and cannot find your kid If it's not eaten by a crock Maybe the dingo did If you're planning to drive into central London it's not just the traffic you'll need to consider because you will be watched by a camera at any one of the 600 or more points of entry and you may have to pay for this privilege. There's the congestion charge, a road toll that is designed to discourage journeys by road and the ultra low emission zone charge or ULES, another toll to incentivize the movement to greener fuels. For many centuries, right through to the present day, London's traffic problems have been the stuff of legend. Cars, delivery vans and buses form a slow-moving swamp of vehicles down most of the main streets for most of the day, and have done so for decades. It's no surprise that over the years there have been all sorts of new and innovative proposals to clean up this mess. Ken Livingstone, Mayor of London in 2003, caused a political storm when he declared that he was going to charge motorists for something that had always been free to them, the roads. He introduced the congestion charge zone, which has remained controversial ever since. The capital's traffic problems were not new when the motor car was invented. Even in the 19th century, horse-drawn traffic choked its streets. There have been endless ideas and proposals to fix it ever since, but none have ever got very far or had much success. From the 1930s to the 1970s, proposals were made for new ring roads, dual carriageways, motorways, multi-level interchanges and tunnels to sort out the traffic, but they all faltered when faced with public opposition to the damage and destruction they would cause across London. With no way to build out of the problem, the traffic jams remained. The congestion charge, therefore, was a financial penalty on traffic in central London with the, with the intention that it would be avoided by anyone not on truly essential business there, freeing up space for public transport and making the place more pleasant for pedestrians. The ULES, the Ultra Low Emission Zone Charge, is a scheme introduced in February 2008 to encourage the use of less polluting vehicles and penalise the heaviest polluters. It operates on almost all roads within the Greater London Authority's boundaries. Its stated aim is to improve air quality in the city, and the single biggest source of air pollution is indeed road traffic. The ULES tackles this problem by creating a financial incentive for owners and operators of commercial vehicles to use cleaner, less polluting engines. London isn't alone in implementing a ULES or low emission zone at this time. Several already in operation across Britain, for example in Norwich, Brighton, Oxford, Birmingham, Manchester, Sheffield and more. And there are many, many more across Europe. So is it working? Well, evidence compiled after the first two years of the ultra-low emission zone in London, which started in 2020, suggests it's making a considerable difference, showing that it has already reduced toxic air pollution by almost half in central London and by over a fifth in inner London, 
transforming the quality of air for 4 million Londoners. And in just a few months, the ultra-low emission zone is going to be extended to almost the entire space within the M25. Surely few Londoners or visitors to London can complain that the ULEZ is a bad thing, unless they are having to pay the charge, of course. calling. Don't hang up. We've got your number. <laughs> Puffin, Toucan, Pegasus and Pelican. Well, this is the story of how we get across our roads. This is the story of the pedestrian crossing. Zebra crossings, the only type of uncontrolled crossing used in Britain, have their roots in pre-war days, when the Transport Minister, Leslie Horbalisha, introduced the practice of marking crossing places with orange beacons on top of striped poles. Motorists were expected to stop for people wishing to cross the road when they came across the new signs, which quickly became known as Belisha Beacons. Complaints that the crossings weren't sufficiently visible led to thick white stripes being painted across the road to leave motorists in no doubt, and these were named Zebra Crossings, starting a long tradition of naming new types of crossing after animals. By 1952, a flashing mechanism was installed in the orange beacons so they could be seen at night amidst opposition due to costs as well as people who didn't like the idea of lights flashing all night in their towns. 
by the 1960s, it was clear there was a need for signalised pedestrian crossings. Increased traffic volumes meant that the zebra crossings were not the all-purpose solution they had once been. The first of these was the Panda Crossing, a zebra crossing with signals for cars and the words WAIT and CROSS for pedestrians. A huge publicity campaign was mounted, but from the very beginning it was poorly received. And it, it was absurdly complicated to use, with convoluted sequences of flashing and pulsating lights, some steady, some getting faster. And at the end of a sequence, all the lights would disconcertingly just switch off. Panda crossings might not have been popular or intuitive, but they flashed and pulsated their way across much of England before they were supplanted in 1967 by the panda's successor, simpler for both motorists and pedestrians to understand. For the first time, an audible whine was used to inform blind people that it was safe to cross. A steady red light stopped traffic. It was still a souped-up zebra crossing, and the outdated crossing was called the Pelican. But names that had been considered were Lightways, Conways, Sigways, Safe Lanes, Pedlights, Pedways and Crosslights. The Pelican Crossing was fast to establish itself across Britain as the pedestrian crossing of choice, with its basic setup of traffic lights and red and green man signals. That was when Britain got the hang of pedestrian crossings. And so, I've reached the end of my road for this show. I'm at the ferry terminal, about to cross over to the Channel Island of Sark. But I'm not going on a car ferry. This is a ferry only for passengers travelling by foot, because Sark is one of the few remaining places in the whole world where cars are banned from roads and only tractors, bicycles and horse-drawn vehicles are allowed. So, no cars. It's a safe, clean, quiet and above all, oh, above all, no reassuring roar as you press the pedal to the metal. No car, no way. Driving cars is fun. It's the opportunity to explore new places, discover fresh sights and sounds. Out on that open road, listening to music, clearing my head, making time for myself and, and taking the chance to escape from the stresses and strains of everyday life. Yes, with that open road before me, I can go anywhere. From behind the wheeler, I really take control of my destiny. I'm Bill Lawrence, and you've been listening to Box 39, the programme of community music, chat and humour, and this has been our exploration of our roads. So from the driving seat of the Cone Radio Senior Presenters Company sports car with a full tank of fuel and looking out at the network of roads, motorways, avenues and highways stretching out far into the distance, it's time to close Box 39 once more. Be seeing you.
39 is a guppy production for Colon Radio and is committed to a varied, equitable and truly inclusive output that properly reflects the ethnic diversity of our community audience. <laughs> 